I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hey, Mark, good to see you. Good to see you too, Miriam. And so excited to jump into today's conversation with Julia Stoyanovich, uh, who uh, I think is going to have a lot of really interesting stuff to share with us about her work at the uh, NYU Responsible AI Institute. I agree. I'm looking forward to talking with someone who is so steeped in the academic sphere of responsible AI, who has a deep background in computer science, but who's also found different ways of uh, connecting with people through New York Times, through other mediums such as comic books, and uh, looking forward to hearing what she has underway and, and what goals she has with uh, reaching out to people through these various mediums. Absolutely. I'm really excited to hear about all of that, in particular the comic books. So let's, uh, let's hear from Julia. Let's do it. Today, we're fortunate to be joined by Julia Stoyanovich. Julia is the Institute Associate Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at the Tandon School of Engineering at NYU. She's also Associate Professor of Data Science at the Center for Data Science and the Director of the Center for Responsible AI, also at NYU. Julia's research focuses on responsible data management and analysis practices, on operationalizing fairness, diversity, transparency, and data protection in all stages of the data acquisition and processing lifecycle. She holds MS and PhD degrees in computer science from Columbia University and a BS in computer science and mathematics and statistics from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Welcome to the show, Julia. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to have you. We're really excited to hear about your work today and, and some of your views and opinions and experiences in this world of ethical AI. So maybe we could just start with a little bit about your current role and the work that you do today. Uh, could you just start off by telling us a bit about the Center for Responsible AI at NYU and how it's come to be and, and what you're up to? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the Center for Responsible AI is, is fairly new. Uh, it was co-founded by Steve Kuyan and me uh, just this past fall. So that would be fall 2020. Uh, Steve Kuyan is uh, a wonderful person and the director of entrepreneurship at the Tandon School of Engineering at NYU. And so he has a lot of experience with uh, seeing how to bring products and ideas to market. Uh, he has also been doing work in startup incubation and acceleration at NYU as part of his role as managing director of the Future Labs. Um, so I myself am an academic. Uh, my background is in data management, which is one of these areas of computer science that is very well established and that is one of the precursors to data science uh, as we think of it today. Uh, data management is the area that gave us reliable ways to transfer money from our checking accounts to our saving accounts without having money evaporate in the middle somewhere. Uh, this is the area that also ultimately led to search engine technology, to algorithms like Google's PageRank algorithm. Uh, and of course, today we are doing uh, whatever the world throws at us in terms of figuring out how to collect. Uh, interesting new data and how to respond to people's information needs using that data that comes about. And there's no shortage of data, there's no shortage of new information needs, and so the field of data management is as alive as ever. Uh, and so data management, again, is one of these pragmatic fields within computer science, 
we see ourselves as uh, sort of engineers, pragmatic engineers with a knack for simplicity, for, uh, you know, simple models that express things that happen in the world in a way that allows us to deal with them simply, cleanly, and elegantly. Uh, and in the last few years, uh, in fact, almost 10 years, uh, I became very interested in addition to building data-rich systems in the kinds of impacts that technology, including data technology, has on the world around us, right? And this is something that, of course, we're all very well aware of today. Uh, society is changing as a result of computation, of data, of predictive analytics. And this is essentially tremendous success of computer science and data science as a field. But the more successful we get, the more responsibility we have for making sure that things don't go wrong, so to say. And so uh, based on this realization that things are not just good when they are efficient, but also we need to worry about uh, what we should and shouldn't do with technology, what types of people we should have at the table when we decide when to use the technology and whom it benefits and whom it harms. This led me to this work that then in turn uh, led to the establishment of the Center for Responsible AI at NYU uh, that does a bunch of work, including basic and applied research in computer science, in data science, at the intersection between data science and social science uh, and policy. We do a lot of work in education, as you mentioned in your intro, Mark. Uh, so we uh, educate both current and future data scientists on these responsibility concerns, but we also think that it's very important to educate non-technical people, like policymakers, decision makers at companies, and perhaps most importantly, members of the public who are being impacted by algorithmic decisions. And the goal of that education is not just to tell people that there is such a thing as an algorithm and there is such a thing as data, but most importantly, to give them a way to exercise agency in this environment, to actually be in control of the data, of the algorithms, the way that they're designed and the way that they impact them. Well, I'm so excited about the work you're doing and that your lens includes policymakers, which is for all of us uh, a big priority, the World Economic Forum and Equal AI, um, and especially that you're focusing on the public. Uh, I think at the end of the day, that could be the most powerful movement to ensure that we do achieve responsible AI and um, and we need their uh, public awareness and understanding of what's happening, why it needs to happen a certain way. Um, but that is not a small task, I understand. Um, I'm curious about some of the tools, some of the ways that you go about doing that. I know you wrote an op-ed, I'm sure that is part of, of the strategy there in, in bringing in the general public into your work and your uh, concerns. Um, so I'm interested in, in how you're going about that work and also more specifically about this fabulous op-ed you co-wrote recently, We Need Laws to Take on Racism and Sexism in Hiring Technology, and what your specific goal was, why you wrote that piece and what you hoped would follow uh, from your writing of that piece. Thank you very much for that question, Miriam. So uh, the way that I became convinced that we need to bring members of the public to the table and not only invite them to the party, as they say, but also make sure that they can dance and productively participate in these conversations is when I became involved in a uh, technology policy effort in New York City. 
So back in 2018, uh, our mayor appointed an automated decision systems task force uh, that was the first such exercise in the country. And its goal was to uh, provide guidelines for New York City agencies about becoming transparent and accountable in their use of automated decision systems, essentially data-driven algorithmic systems. And uh, I, I was a member of the task force and it became to me very clear to me very, very soon uh, that without public understanding, without public pressure, uh, that only the voters can exert on the officials they elect, we are not going to get very far at all in terms of uh, gaining ways to oversee, to regulate, to keep these systems, automated decision systems in check, in government or elsewhere. Um, another thing that I learned from that uh, automated decision systems task force experience was that it probably is not worthwhile uh, to be doing things very generally and at the high level, or at least not only very generally and at the high level. We do need concrete examples such as algorithmic hiring, uh, to make sure that we can actually get to the bottom of, again, what are the benefits and to whom are these the benefits, what are the risks, and to whom are these the risks of the use of these systems, and to try and understand how to really solicit public input on these questions. You cannot come up to a member of the public and say, what do you think about automated decision systems? They won't know what you're talking about. But if you talk to somebody and they say, you've been looking for a job, uh, and uh, do you know that, in fact, very often it is the case that computers evaluate your application, that computers look at your resume and not humans? And how do you feel about that? Do you have any concerns about that? Do you think that this is good or not? Uh, what are your concerns specifically? What would you like to know? Then this is a much more tangible way to engage with the public. And so I think we need examples like algorithmic hiring, uh, to help us understand how to oversee the use of these systems. And from several strong examples, we can then generalize, of course. But we are not there yet. We do need these examples that are complete. And so the op-ed that you mentioned, Miriam, uh, I had the pleasure of co-authoring with the wonderful Hilke Shellman, who is a journalist and a professor of journalism at NYU, and Alexander Givens, uh, who runs the and now I'm blinking, the Center on... Democracy and Technology. Thank you. And Alexandra Givens, who runs the Center on Democracy and Technology. Um, and in that op-ed, we spoke about uh, a proposed law that New York City is considering that would regulate the use of automated hiring systems in particular. Uh, these are systems and tools that screen your resume, that analyze your recorded uh, interview video, for speech patterns or for the way that you look at the camera. Uh, and, and then based on uh, these types of analysis is going to decide who moves on to the next round of the hiring process and who is discarded. And uh, we have reason to believe that these systems don't work as advertised very often, that they're actually not able to tell who might do better on the job uh, in any way that's better than flipping a random coin essentially. And furthermore, uh, there is evidence that these tools discriminate against individuals based on their membership in historically disadvantaged groups. So we have evidence that these tools discriminate against women, against individuals who are not Caucasian, against people with disabilities, 
And in particular, we have concerns about intersectional discrimination, about the kinds of impacts that these systems may have on people who belong to multiple marginalized groups. Um, and so the New York City law aims to uh, give us some insight into how these systems are used by companies. It has two parts. One of the parts is that a bias audit would be required for these tools before they are deployed. And the second part is that there would be a public disclosure requirement, meaning that if you as a job seeker were evaluated with the help of an algorithmic hiring tool, first of all, you'd have to be notified that the machine screened you and not a person. And secondly, you would have to be told what specific features of your application, what properties the machine picked up and made its decision based on as to whether or not you are worthy of being hired at the company. And so if this law were to pass, that would be a very, very strong first step in our collective ability to oversee these tools. Personally, I am much more excited actually about the public disclosure piece of this rather than the auditing for bias. Uh, and in the op-ed, there are some shortcomings of the law as it is written now that we identified, but I do still hope uh, that the law uh, goes ahead uh, after deliberation and rewriting and that we are able to start uh, figuring out how to make this disclosure possible and how to get people to the table who are being impacted to tell us whether they are now understanding these systems better and have better control over their operation. That's brilliant. And I want to come back to the, to the question of engaging with the public uh, in, in a couple of minutes, but I want to just stay on this question of, of, of kind of the evolving policy and governance landscape, because I think this is a great example of how the government is, uh, at, at the level of the city in this case, responding to some of the emerging issues. And zooming out from that particular example, I'm curious what you see as the state of play in terms of AI governance, both in terms of policies coming from government, but also governance that's being implemented by companies in anticipation of possible policies uh, and or just in response to what they see as their own obligations as a company or demands from their customers. Um, you know, where are we and, and, and kind of, you know, what, what, what are the big issues that are live right now? Uh, and, you know, where, where, might we, where might we be heading? Mark, this is a very important and a very complex question. Uh, Policy and regulation are very important tools uh, in our joint toolkit uh, of uh, reining in uh, the use of automated decision systems in society. It's by no means the only uh, tool in the toolkit, but I'm really glad to see uh, that lots of entities, government entities, entities in the private sector are engaging in these exercises now, are thinking through uh, some effective and useful policy mechanisms, are drafting guidelines, uh, are making statements, high level or not, uh, about how they believe that AI should or should not be used. I don't think we will get to a point where we have uh, a robust way to oversee these systems if we don't realize that we all are responsible for this. No single stakeholder group is going to be able to uh, shoulder this responsibility. It's not only up to government, it's not only up to companies to make sure that uh, we keep these systems in check. Uh, as I already mentioned, I think it's very, very important that members of the public also step up. And here I'm going to give an example from this domain that I already mentioned, and that is automated hiring systems. 
So suppose that we wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, a software, a piece of software that is uh, procured by some large company uh, is helping them hire in ways that is both efficient and effective and is not discriminating against individuals. Now, we know that people usually don't disclose their membership in marginalized groups or very often don't disclose it. And this is in part for fear of discrimination and you cannot compel a person to disclose whether or not they are disabled, for example, or whether they belong to a minority ethnic group. Uh, and so if we don't have that information about the applicants, if we don't know whether or not they are disabled, we're not going to be able to audit these systems for bias against that group. But what that means, though, is that by providing disclosure, by explaining to individuals how they were evaluated with the help of these tools, what specific characteristics the tool picked up, and by having people look carefully at these explanations and speaking up if they see something wrong, we will get to a point where uh, we will be able to pick up some harmful actions. For example, if a person who is colorblind gets an explanation that they were not hired because they could not quickly enough tell apart the red squares from the green squares on the screen, they can say, first of all, this is discriminatory. I'm colorblind blind, and so you should not be using this information because it uh, is against me. And secondly, I don't see how this skill of being able to tell apart geometric shapes of different colors is relevant to this job. And so at this point, the process can start where we jointly interrogate and redesign the use of these systems. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. I, I think that, 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 that we're, yeah, in some ways, still at the beginning of the, the, the process of figuring out what is that right dynamic to, to, to collaborate between the different stakeholder groups. I think, you know, I would agree with what you said, which is if we wait for government to, uh, you know, solve all of the problems that are emerging around AI, we'll be waiting for a long time. Similarly, uh, if we um, wait for the private sector to address it all on its own, a lot of them will not be addressed. And so I'm, I'm really you know, curious in uh, how those, those collaborations and those dynamics between those sectors and also how academics such as yourself, how civil society groups, how citizens advocates come into the picture. Um, and, and I think you know, we're at the beginning of it and, and, and I'm just very happy that you and your team are both kind of tracking and contributing to that while also working on educating the participants in these processes so that they have a, a, a higher level of capacity to, to address some of the complexities that are, that, are, that are coming up. And perhaps that's maybe the follow-up question is, is just to, to drill it a little bit further into that work that you're doing to bring some of the technical knowledge and, and also kind of socio-technical knowledge um, that your group is developing to policymakers, not just in terms of participating in the processes in the ways that you have, but also in actually educating them so that they have the tools that they need to do the policy work better. Um, so I'd be curious to hear a little bit about how you how you do that work of, of, of capacity building and, and, and what you're seeing in terms of where the capacity currently is inside of government in particular um, and therefore kind of, you know, where we need to go um, and how we're going to get there. Let me respond to a slightly different question and then I'll, I'll return to, to capacity building. So um, as a technologist myself, when I first started participating in these uh, tech policy exercises, the Automated Decision Systems Task Force in particular in New York, 
I was hoping that I would be able to take some of the technical knowledge that I have and find some new research problems and publish more papers and then, of course, find ways to actually build tools that are going to help New York City disclose uh, information about these automated decision systems that they run. But we didn't get there at all. And the reason for that is that really the technical part of all of this, I think, is easy. What's hard is figuring out how to create an environment in which different participants, different stakeholders don't feel threatened. They don't feel like by participating in this exercise, there's only something for them to lose, like a government entity appearing on the front page of the New York Times in a bad light, but rather that there are some positive incentives for them to participate. And so I think that we're not going to, once again, we're not going to move very or advance very far if we are not able to come up with a uh, structure of incentives with a combination of sticks and carrots. At the moment, we only really have sticks. Um, and so I think that education and also participation from academic entities, such as the Center for Responsible AI, but also others, can serve that role to create a kind of a neutral, comfortable environment where people can come together and they can feel entitled to make mistakes and learn from their mistakes and come to participate in this conversation, in this exercise really to build a distributed accountability environment in good faith. So more than a kind of pragmatic, you know, I have knowledge and I give you knowledge and therefore you're better off. I think right now what we need is just the safe space in which to interact and to somehow come to consensus about how to even navigate these very, very difficult conversations. I think that's such a good point that uh, there are consequences to participating, whether you're in an underserved population, whether you're in uh, industry, uh, and, and for the government to, to start to weigh in. But uh, in you've given a great example, too, of a way that uh, particularly government can be helpful here by creating a safe space. And I uh, would love uh, if you could give us a little more detail into what you'd like to see from government, whether it's in helping to foster that safe space or other measures you think that we really need, whether it's state, federal, international laws to help us get towards more responsible AI. Yeah, so, so at this point, I will return to Mark's original question, actually, and this is about building capacity within government. So I do think that we also need to get on the same page in terms of just what we can expect these automated decision systems to do and what they can't do. Uh, I like to think of this as we are asking AI to do what we mean, and it doesn't know what we mean, right? And of course, artificial intelligence is all the hype, just the, the keyword, artificial intelligence. It just sounds so amazing that we tend to ascribe these supernatural powers to these machines. But really, they're engineering artifacts. They work to specification. And I think that people building them, people being impacted by them, but also people overseeing and regulating them need to understand them for what they are. We need to come to a point where we can all talk to each other about how we actually formulate these specifications. What do we want these machines to do? And for us to be able to do this, we do need to have some basic level of, of education among uh, policymakers, among other, uh, other groups. And so here I do think that governments really need to invest time and they need to invest resources 
into uh, us, perhaps, or others producing educational materials and uh, sitting down together with policymakers, with public servants to, to teach them on these topics. And this will require time away from their other duties, right? It will actually require that they participate in these courses, professional development opportunities. But I really do think that this is necessary because technology is not second nature to anybody. Ethics together with technology is a very, very scary topic. And we should all just step back, breathe, and understand that we need to go back to school a little bit. Uh, and there are lots of people in academia, academia and elsewhere who are, would be more than happy to step up and, and to offer uh, such educational opportunities. But again, that would require time and it would require resources uh, on the part of these government entities. So that, that would be my uh, kind of my first uh, somewhat self-serving, I guess, answer, because I mean, I, I do think that we need to invest in building capacity. Um, it's harder, it's more expensive, it takes longer to build tools responsibly than it is to just build them somehow, right? We have to recognize that. I think it's a great point. And I think it's, it's also, I, I think funny just to hear you say that. I think it's, it's, it strikes me that we're moving very quickly. You know, all of these conversations that we're having weren't really happening much at all five years ago and certainly weren't happening 10 years ago. And yet we're not necessarily sort of taking stock and saying, right, well, we actually all have a lot to learn and, and we ought to be deliberate and intentional about, about, about educating ourselves. And, and, and actually these dynamics are, are fairly new because this technology is moving so fast. And so I think that's a, a great call to action to, you know, for everyone in the ecosystem to take a moment to say, you know, how can I develop my own capacity and network and, and knowledge so I can be a more thoughtful and, and, and effective contributor to, to this conversation and to this process. And, and on that point, you know, one of the things that I, I think you've done that's been really interesting is explored alternative formats for reaching different audiences uh, than you know, the typical academic or policy type of format of white papers and briefings and memos and so on. In particular, I know you've done several comic books uh, and graphic novel type formats, uh, which are just a very different way of communicating uh, to different kinds of audiences. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your thinking in, in, in pursuing these new formats for communication and, and what you see as the, the, the advantages and the, the interesting possibilities that are raised by uh, opening up these new kinds of formats uh, and, and what kinds of audiences they may be able to help us reach that are otherwise not being reached by the traditional ways of communicating. Thank you for this question, Mark. And you, you can see me smiling because this is really one of the, my favorite things to do these days uh, is, is the work on these uh, comic book series. So to start, uh, I am following in this work the amazingly talented Fala Arif Khan. Uh, Fala approached me uh, a year and a half ago. She is uh, a machine learning student and an engineer. Uh, and I'm actually fortunate that she will join me as a PhD student in the fall at NYU at the Center for Data Science. And she's a very talented artist. And uh, she sent me an email called essentially saying, here's a comic book that I developed, meet AI, uh, and would you like to collaborate? And I absolutely loved the idea. I loved her art. 
I'm not myself an artist. I, I enjoy art, but I cannot draw at all. My eight-year-old's much better than I at this. Uh, but Fali is absolutely amazing. Uh, and we've been working together and just having such a wonderful time developing uh, comic books to reach uh, essentially two different audiences so far. One of these has been um, a project uh, called the Data Responsibly Comics, where we target uh, data science professionals or enthusiasts. For example, I use uh, the comics that are part of that series as supplementary reading for my uh, students uh, at NYU. Uh, in the course that I teach, Responsible Data Science. So these are undergraduate and graduate students in computer science and in data science. And then another comic series is called We Are AI. Uh, and this uh, series has five volumes. They are much shorter. So the Data Responsibly volumes are really long. They are on the order of kind of survey papers uh, in a particular area. And so far we only have two out. One is called Mirror Mirror that gives kind of the overall uh, positioning of responsible AI. And the second is called Fairness and Friends, where we collaborated with the political philosopher, Eleni Manis, on mapping some fairness, algorithmic fairness definitions to political philosophy uh, concepts, uh, in particular equality of opportunity. So, so that has been really just amazingly educational for me and for all of us. So the other comic book series uh, has five shorter volumes that are aimed at members of the public. The series is called We Are AI, uh, and it accompanies a public education course that we just released, also called We Are AI, uh, that consists of a bunch of interactive activities. It has a few videos that I recorded using some of Fala's amazing graphics, uh, and comics are supplementary reading for, for that course. So why am I so excited uh, about working on comic books? It is unusual. Uh, for for academics uh, to be doing something like, like like a comic, although it's not unheard of. Uh, folks have done this before. Um, to me personally, this is a way to get comfortable with a really, really intimidating area, and that is AI ethics. Uh, I would go out on a limb to say that nobody feels like an expert in AI and in ethics at the same time, right? Both of these areas are really complex. They're really intimidating. And you really have to somehow trust yourself to go into an area that is outside your comfort zone to start thinking about these, these topics generally. And yet we must uh, participate in this conversation. And the one difference between a person and an AI is that a person has a sense of humor. And I think that comics really allow us to laugh about ourselves, to laugh about our perhaps misplaced trust uh, in these machines, and in that way to really become much more comfortable about taking action, about exercising agency, about taking this responsibility. Responsible AI, the part about responsible and responsibility, that concerns people. It doesn't concern AI, right? So we need to start taking that responsibility, and I think that visual presentation, that humor, are uh, a way for us to become comfortable doing this, this work. It's so exciting to hear the work that you're doing and the really thoughtful, creative ways that you are including people. You're being inclusive in your mediums and your communications about uh, how we all need to participate. So it's not just inviting people, it's going to people where they are 
whether it's the New York Times that you've been writing in or uh, through comic books. So uh, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for sharing these thoughts with us, your insights. Uh, before we close, we like to ask uh, a concrete way to uh, think about the path forward with a few images, the rose, the thorn, and the bud. So if we could ask you, uh, when it comes to AI, what is your rose? What are you excited about? What is your thorn? What are you concerned about? And what is the bud of what you're looking forward to on the horizon? So first, first with the rose. Uh... I think that the technology is extremely exciting and I'm really excited by the kinds of uh, impact that technology has on society. We're able to do unprecedented things. We're able to almost have safe, uh, safe self-driving cars. We are able to do diagnostics and prognostics in medicine in ways that are personalized that we just could not do before. There are lots of very, very exciting applications uh, of technology, of data, of predictive analytics, and of AI in particular uh, that I think we should not forget about, right? If there was no benefit to using AI, then we wouldn't even have to think about the risks. We could just say, let's not use it. It's not worthwhile, right? But that's not the case. In fact, technology is extremely powerful. The trick is identifying where we are comfortable using it, where we should use it, and where we should not, right? And this is the thorn here, is actually convincing ourselves that AI in particular is this magic bullet, that it can fix uh, by us just pressing a button, we can take this shortcut, debias a data set, and that would somehow magically fix decades, centuries of discrimination, <laughs> for example, in the workforce, right? I mean, that's, that's not gonna happen. There are no shortcuts like that. So, I really worry about people ascribing too much power to technology. And I think that if there is an AI winter coming, it's going to come from that, from us uh, expecting too much of technology that it cannot deliver. And then there being this disappointment uh, that we experience. The bud. Uh, the bud, I think, is uh, this opportunity that we now have to start combining the technical and the social. There are absolutely unprecedented ways for us to think about technology, about the kinds of things that it can give us. If we also start thinking about ethics and about aesthetics, uh, if we start using technology to interpret art differently, to create art, if we start using technology to really assist individuals who are physically disabled, rather than pretending that they don't exist. right? So I think there, there are lots of opportunities here that are at this socio-technical interface that uh, we should start using. But that again requires that we become comfortable uh, crossing over these boundaries between technology and, and society and politics and just life. But I'm very excited about these possibilities. Well, we are too, and we thank you for helping to build those bridges so that others can join us in this enthusiasm and in this better place where we do have responsible AI. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining us today. Thank you, Julia. Thank you very much, Miriam and Mark. It was an immense pleasure. Well, Mark, as build, another great episode. Really a great conversation. I, I really loved hearing from Julia both about her work and her views on what's happening in the responsible AI space and 
I, I'm leaving it feeling very inspired, really, um, about about the future of AI and 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 the role of uh, academics and, and and many other stakeholders in in moving the field forward. Um, anything that jumped out in particular to you, Miriam? Yeah, I'm really struck by and grateful for her commitment for engaging the public. I think, uh, you know, too often people are not focused on the really important role of, like she said, not just bringing people to the table, not just teaching them to dance, but uh, letting them participate in the dance. I think that that will be a key factor in achieving responsible AI. And I'm so glad she's focused on it and found really interesting ways uh, of engaging people. And, and uh, in addition, her focus as well on making examples concrete, whether it's the op-ed she writes, uh, the ways she's engaging uh, various stakeholders, I think she's absolutely right that we need to do that by not being uh, so big picture in, in throughout our discussion, that we really make sure people understand how it plays out, how it could hurt them, and the specifics of, of what it means translating for those who don't commonly speak in the AI space. Because like she said, uh, people don't have an expertise in ethics or AI and often either. And, and uh, I'm grateful that she wants to be a translator. How about you, Mark? Well, I completely agree with all that. And I think that it all comes down to something she mentioned early on in the interview when talking about public engagement, which is agency. So it's not just about telling people how AI works. It's not just about helping people understand the implications of AI in our society, but it's about empowering people to participate in and engage with the systems that have an effect on their lives. Uh, and that is something that I think is important in AI. It's important in other domains. And I think that all of the work that she's doing and that her group is doing to promote that, that agency of, of citizens and of individuals is, is really important and inspiring. I also think that what Julia said about incentives in terms of policy um, really struck a chord with me. I think that the carrots and the sticks of, of responsible AI are, are, are still in their infancy. Governments are obviously thinking about what kind of behavior they want to incentivize and what kind they want to punish. And similarly, companies are thinking about how to create the right kinds of structures internally so that their engineers are developing products that are ethical. But it's really early days. And I think that um, for me, that conversation was just a, a kind of call to action to, to be a little bit more creative and a little bit more proactive in thinking through not just how do we get people to do the right things, but how do we create an enabling environment that makes it easier for people to do the right things because doing the right things ends up being more remunerative. It ends up being better for your brand, better for your business success or wherever, whatever it may be. So uh, I thought that was kind of an important balance uh, or, or sort of, uh, you know, I think we often talk about ethical AI in terms of doing the right thing. And I think it's important to also think about how can we make it easier for people to do the right thing, uh, not just sort of hope that everyone does it off of their own volition. Yeah, absolutely. We can't pretend that there aren't huge consequences. And, you know, like we've heard from some of our other interviews and as we've had 
see, we've seen in our own experience, there are many people and companies who are trying to do the right thing here, but are really concerned about uh, sh showcasing that or, or even sharing it, uh, being on some public discussions because they know that there are consequences for getting this wrong. And, and so I do think she's absolutely right and, and onto something by thinking through how can we encourage participation where we um, have various stakes. I mean, sometimes the stakes need to be high. If you are discriminating in, in, in ways that are limiting people's opportunities from getting finance opportunities, from hiring, et cetera, uh, that, that should be handled differently than saying you're trying to do better in this space. So really important points. And I'm just sorry that people couldn't hear our conversations with her about her own origin story, how she became interested in computer science, and how she absolutely lit up when we were talking about responsible AI uh, and how she came to it because it seemed to present uh, an organic connection of what is most important to her, a connection between you know almost her, her brain and her heart and, and, and sharing that uh, with other people and, and the, how she's seen in her students um, the benefits of, for instance, creating more diversity and who feels comfortable participating by including responsible in the discussion of AI. Yes, that all left me feeling very optimistic, actually. It sounds like from Julia's experience, the next wave, the new batch of computer scientists and engineers is coming in with really a, a quantum leap forward in terms of their awareness of some of these issues of fairness and accountability, bias, intersectionality. And to me, that just augurs very well, I think, for the future of responsible AI. I think it does start at the level of education and uh, training. And I think that the work that Julia is doing and that many others are doing there is, is going to serve us very well. Uh, so one thing I would leave uh, listeners with is that we are going to put the link in the chat, uh, rather into the, the description of the episode to the comic books that were mentioned uh, by Julia. I highly recommend everyone check them out. They're really a great example uh, of how creative forms of communication can reach new audiences uh, with these important messages around uh, responsible AI and responsible technology. Uh, and they're also just a great read. So highly recommend checking them out. Sounds great. All right, another great episode. Looking forward to the next one, Mark. All right, see you soon, Miriam. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 